0: Psalm 127, unless the, build, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord washes over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives uh, to his beloved sleep. Behold, Children are a heritage from the Lord; the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, are the children of the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them; he shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, join me in praying. Yeah, Father, um, in heaven. Um, we ask you to um, build this house this morning um, through jake 's preaching um, of truth that you would establish a mercy house um, for your glory God um, we ask that you you watch over um, the city this this place this camp this, these campuses this community um, yeah we want to acknowledge that you are sovereign. Um, we want to work and work diligently, um, but we don't want to work it in vain. Uh, I pray that we would um, work um, unto you, unto your glory, knowing that we do all of these things um, in the sight of you and under heaven um, We thank you for the children that we have um, in this church. Um, We praise you that they are um, arrows. We pray that you would also protect them. You would watch over them. Um, Establish them in in your truth. Uh, We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Mercy House, Second Service. Uh, My name is Jake Blackwood, and I'm an elder here, and I have uh, the great privilege uh, to preach this morning from Psalm 127. Uh, It's, of course, always a privilege uh, to preach, but at this particular time in this particular church, uh, my hope is that the words we read today will be as soothing and invigorating for you as they were for me in preparing this sermon. So, over the fall semester, uh, Tommy Moore has been leading us through uh, a series on the Psalms of Ascent. So, this is a collection of songs that were to be sung by Jewish pilgrims as they made their way up to Jerusalem for one of the three feasts uh, that were held each year. On their long journey toward the high ground of Jerusalem, they sang songs that reflected the tenuous nature of their journey and reflected on their confidence in a God who cared for them as they walked in obedience. In recent weeks, we've seen that these psalms reflect on the great need that these pilgrims had as they traveled, and the deliverance and protection uh, that God provides in those times of need. We have seen expressions of joy for those walking in God's ways. We've seen remembrance of previous deliverance, but also remembrance uh, on past calamities as well that have led to anticipation of eventual restoration and expressions of trust that God will fulfill His promises. So, there's a breadth and depth here that we're seeing in this series and the nature of their worship as they make this sometimes perilous journey uh, toward Jerusalem. Are, uh, and, and on this journey, this, this, this playlist, is like, it's like a good symphony or a good album that there's movements here exploring a range of emotions or experiences and characteristics of God. And as we turn towards Psalm 127, we're going to see a shift to focus on how full and pervasive our trust in God should be, in particular, in the endeavors and work that we undertake on this earth. So. Uh, Some background here, so this is going to be the only psalm in this series that was uh, written by Solomon, or likely written by Solomon, the king uh, who was chosen to build God's house, the temple. So, this building was, uh, or this structure was the culmination, in many ways, of the inhabitation of the promised land. It was the house of God that was finally established in the land that was promised. And likewise, the establishment and integration of Jerusalem itself was really a watershed moment in the history of Israel, right? But it was still fraught with danger in the sense that they were surrounded by enemies, so it was necessary for them to keep watch to ensure that they would not be surprised or attacked by enemies. So Solomon here is reflecting on the work of the Lord in both the establishment of his house and the ultimate fulfillment of his promise to give them the land that they were living in. So Solomon, uh, by the way, is also the potential uh, author or maybe even the inspiration to Ecclesiastes, which reflects extensively on the nature of work uh, and human effort. And so we recently did a series on Ecclesiastes, and if you're interested in these themes that we're gonna explore here today, which really reflect on, uh, uh, on what is the purpose of work, I would encourage you to go back and look uh, or listen to that series as well. Um, I think another thing we can say about Solomon too is that he was one who was noted for many possessions, power, and wealth. So in the world's eyes, that's gonna be something that provides you security uh, and, and safety, but we're gonna see he has a very different perspective on these things. All right. So, given that context, let's read the Psalm once, once more. So, this is a song of ascent of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for He gives to His beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them; He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So, one of the, my favorite buildings in the world, I'd say it's probably my favorite building, uh, is the Sagrada Familia Cathedral in Barcelona. So designed by Antoni Gaudi, these, uh, uh, who is an architect whose designs are often very like fanciful, almost like Dr. Seuss-like uh, in some ways. If you go to Barcelona, you'll see them kind of scattered throughout the city. Uh, and in this particular building, the facades and structures have that character. They're, they're at once beautiful, but also bizarre. They're intricate. They're modern and somehow classic at the same time. Uh, they're also controversial and, and profoundly weird. Uh, I love it, it's great, um, I love the detail uh, taken in this building to give each element meaning and significance. I love the way that uh, it light spills in the interior, I, I, didn't, I hadn't seen the interior, I think we have a picture of it, I hadn't seen the interior before I got there and I was just blown away by how light filters in around these columns that look like these cartoon trees. And I love how it expresses the Christian tradition with that Catalan flair. It's an amazing structure, and what's even more amazing about it to me is that it's not done yet. It hasn't been finished. It was started in the 1880s, and it's anticipated it won't be finished until 2036, 150 years after ground was first broken on the project. So a whole generation of people will have come and gone by the time Uh, that it is completed and gaudi himself likely only saw a fraction of it completed as he died in 1926. so how does that feel how does it feel to be a part of something to begin work on something your life's work and maybe your grandchildren will see it completed so how does it feel to contribute to something that is going to expand beyond your lifetime and uh, on the other hand, for those, of us, for those working on it today, how does that feel to participate in a project that goes back so far, it predates the radio and the commercial use of electricity? Well, I would suggest that as Christians, we know very well what this feels like, or at least we should. Our faith places our work, our effort, our striving as a small part of an expansive history. It's the story of what God has done, is doing, and will do through Christ. So let's turn to this text, and let's see how Solomon here places our work in the context of what God is accomplishing. And I think if we look at verses, if we focus on verses 1 and 2 here, we're going to see Solomon's perspective on how we should view work and how God relates to it. So I want us to ask three questions with respect to these two verses. So The first is, how does God relate to His creation's own work according to the author, according to Solomon here? Right, so, how does God relate to create His creation's work? And then given that perspective, right, we want to ask, is Solomon right? Is it really true what he's saying about God's relationship with our work? And then, if it's true, then so what? What does it matter for us? So question one, how does God relate to His creation's work? The short answer that I'm going to give here is that God is the central protagonist and the animating force that gives life and fullness to everything we do. So that again, God is the central protagonist and the animating force that gives life and fullness to everything we do. So the first thing Uh, I want to draw out here in these, we've got these two parallel conditions, unless the Lord builds the house and unless the Lord watches over the city. And we see an assumption here that God is active and at work in the world, that God can and does build and watch over His creation. He is not passive or a watchmaker or indifferent to His creation, but actively and integrally involved in its workings through His providence. The second thing I think we see here is that there is a necessity of God's work and providence for the fulfillment of any human endeavor. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So it's necessary for the fulfillment of, uh, of any human endeavor. So this song is leaning against a tendency for us to view hard work material wealth, power, ability, competency, intelligence, all things, by the way, that Solomon had in abundance as sufficient for fruitful life. According to Scripture, your money, your talents, your stick your education, your persuasiveness, your strategic thinking are nothing without the providential work of the Holy God. He's the animating force that gives life and fullness to every work we do, and he is doing it to affect his will. In Philippians 2.13, we read, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, God is working through us to will and work his good pleasure, and beyond that, it's it's also the fact that he enables everything to exist moment by moment. Hebrews 1.3 says he upholds the universe by the word of His power. So, He's enabling all of existence to just be. (laughs) And then at the same time, He's willing and working uh, uh, through us uh, to work for His good pleasure. So, that's the perspective we have here, that God is central and He's animating all that we do. That's the perspective that Solomon is sharing here. Do we think that this is true? Well, my… My short answer is obviously going to be yes, right? But I think we can maybe probe this a little bit. We can maybe question it. So, like, we might, we might want to say, surely my actions impact my material conditions. Like, surely what I do matters for my ability to eat and sleep and so on and so forth and have housing and that kind of thing. And, and you know, yes, that's actually here. As one commentator puts it, there is bread here, even if it is the bread of anxious toil. And in a physical sense, it can sustain you, at least for a little while. But ultimately, though, it's not the bread of life. It fails to provide fulfillment, joy, or meaning to your existence when, it's, when it is the focus of your efforts and labor. And ultimately, it can only sustain you for so long. Eventually, it won't be able to, and you'll pass on. And so what does that, when we die, uh, it might be the case, though, that like, our legacy lives on, though. That's what You might push back. So yes, of course, all, everybody's going to die, but like, we might be able to have a legacy that lives on. Right? Don't, so, don't some people matter so much that we remember their names thousands of years later? Don't we have examples of people wh- whose actions were important and we still feel those today? Or at least groups of people? Isn't it true that like, an individual can change the world? Yeah, and I think suppose for a second, like, Suppose we all, like, lived a a life where you just, like, crushed it, right? You, like, exceeded every single benchmark you were supposed to meet. As a kid, you were classified as gifted. You had a perfect 4.0 GPA through high school. You did all of the extracurriculars, and you were really good at all of them. It wasn't just, like, box checking. You were, like, really good at everything. And you got into all of the Ivies because of this. Again, you excelled in academics at college. You helped organize and lead all types of student groups. You affected change at your institution as a student. You interned each summer and received your pick of offers from employers. And then as a professional, you revolutionized your field. You developed new technologies. You designed efficient and life-altering policies for humanity. You received honor and titles and glory. You have a family and your friends. They enrich your life. You enrich theirs. You give generously uh, the vast amount of your wealth that you've accumulated through your entrepreneurship and speaking fees. And then in your retirement years, like, you exert this quiet but wise and judicious influence on society until you die. And like, maybe there's like, a big funeral, right? Or uh, they build a couple of monuments to you. Uh, they might even, like, if you're really lucky, like, name a city after you. That seems to be like a pretty big deal, right? That could happen. Okay. But I put it to you that at best, a couple of hundred years from now, you'll be something people memorize in a sixth grade history class. Some people might be like intensely interested in your life, but they'll be outliers or it'll be like their job or something uh, to know that much about you. But, you know, and maybe that qualifies it to some sense. Some people remember them. We, their actions still have lingering effects on our lives today. Is that vanity? Hmm, I'm not sure. I kind of think it is, though. So two things about this. One is like, first of all, okay, I described this person. What about the rest of us, right? <laughs> you know, like what about the rest of us who don't meet all of those objectives and aren't don't have that kind of impact? I saw someone on Twitter, admitted, admittedly, say that they uh, ask their students each year if they can name all eight of their grandparents or great grandparents, all eight of their great grandparents, and most like can't name maybe one or two, right? after three generations most people are forgotten even by people within their own family so what hope do we have right is it vain for the rest of us right and i think even if you focus on these sort of great men and women of history right You know, you can say, can you even really say it's their efforts that created that change? I mean, think about like some of the most cited great men. They were usually like generals or something, right? And like the most overwhelming evidence of God's providence in their lives, to me at least, is that they didn't just die sometime earlier in battle or something like that, right? How many stories have you heard of like George Washington getting his hat shot off his head, you know, before he ever became president? It's like, it's staggering how many little events seem to matter for people's lives, and even, like, even if we go beyond that to the scale of whole nations, it's hard to disentangle huge, history-altering events from small, seemingly random ones, right? So for the, the history heads here, all right, what's the, what's the event that kicks off World War I? Anybody? That's right, the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand sets off World War I, in which Somewhere somewhere over like 20 million people die. It changes the course of the 20th century, um, and it might not have happened if Ferdinand's driver didn't take a wrong turn and have to stop and back up, right? That's an extreme example, but it highlights the fact that the world is full of what-ifs and chance and circumstances beyond our control that largely determine the success and failure of our efforts. In recent times, there's been more of an emphasis on this, like the surrounding environment of an individual either inhibits or enables uh, their success, right? And you know, a de-emphasis of this idea of like bootstrapping myself so that I can control my own destiny. And I think that this is like a helpful corrective to an overly individualistic perspective that says like, I'm the captain of my own destiny. We're not, unless the Lord builds the house, unless he watches over the city, over your life and the the millions of tiny events that conspire to give you success or failure in anything you undertake, then none of it would happen, right? That's the condition, not only for the Christian, but for everyone. God is working his will, his providence through all people, including Solomon, by the way, right? Who at the end of his life, he's an apostate. He's given up the faith, he's no longer walking with the Lord. God used him to write scripture, right? So God is working his will through every one. And so I think if we're convinced of this, that you know, even for those that have a lasting impact on history, that it is God working through them, right? I think that we need to ask ourselves so what does this mean for us? So what? So what does it mean? So I think for us it means that we should work diligently but unto the Lord and with joy, since our treasure lies in heaven. So, we should work diligently unto the Lord with joy, since our treasure lies in heaven. So, I mean, is the psalmist here saying stop working, right? As some people have interpreted the psalm as basically saying, hey, don't work so hard, right? No, that's not, I think, what's being said here. people in our sin nature, we tend to respond to hardship in one of two ways, either to overwork or to completely disengage. When faced with the challenges and trials of life, we either seek to address them by throwing ourselves into them or throwing our hands up in hopelessness. This text is really meant to lean against that first viewpoint, that, you know, my practical means of addressing my material needs, that that's going to satisfy and provide meaning to my life. But note here that like even though that's the perspective that's being taken there are still laborers building right and watchmen watching people are still acting here Right. the point here is not for us to just let go and let god paul describes to the thessalonians and is e- that about when he's talking about his efforts in first thessalonians 2 9 for remember brothers our labor and toil we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So they're working night and day to the bone, some translations say. Right? Fingers to the bone. Do they, but do they think ultimately that that's what's causing the work to be accomplished? No, we see in verse 13, they recognize what's really doing the work here. It says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is: the word of God, which is at work in you believers. The word of God is doing the work, even why they while they are working themselves day and night. And furthermore, we see in Paul's second letter to the same church. So in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he, there's, a, there's an admonishment to those who haven't, have decided, not to, or d- decided to just take it easy in the church. Uh, he first holds up his own example, and then he reproves them uh, for not working to provide for themselves. And what's, what's interesting here is he bookends this with an encouragement. He says in, uh, in, in verse 12 that, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. So our work, these efforts that we undertake, should not be burdensome if we are doing good. And that's not to say that there won't be moments where it's hard. There won't be sleepless nights, uh, painful experiences in the midst of trying to serve God and be faithful. But in general, our work should be characterized by joy and a lack of worry. Paul summarizes this, uh, how we should work in Colossians three twenty-three through 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ." So one of the things we see at the end of that verse, by the way, is we see that part of the reason we are working is because there is a benefit to us, right? There is an inheritance that's promised here. So what are we working for, right? I think we see in Matthew 6, 19 through 21. The outline of what we're working towards, it says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys nor thieves break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the key point here is that what keeps our labor from being vanity is that when faithful work is done unto the Lord, when done to advance His kingdom here on earth, when done to glorify Him above all, the payoff is eternal, and nothing can take it away. And part of that inheritance we actually get here, in the here and, the, in the here and now, for those of us who are in Christ, saved by grace through faith in Him and His atoning work on the, uh, for us on the cross, we read in Psalm 127, for He gives to His beloved sleep. For He gives to those He loves, His beloved, sleep. Rest comes as a gift for those trusting in the ultimate builder and watchman. So that when we labor, when we build, when we watch, we do not do so in anxiety, frustration, or bitterness, but with satisfaction that allows us to put our head on our pillow and sleep. We're able to Sabbath without our minds wandering to what needs to be done next, relax without the cares of the world, which are always going to be there, crowding out our reflections on the Holy God who's upholding the universe. That rest is part of an earthly gift, but it is also a rest that comes from the confidence we have in our heavenly inheritance where our ultimate treasure is. Augustine begins his confessions with the statement, our hearts are restless, O God, until they rest in you. True rest comes from the trust and security we have in a good God and our ultimate reward. So, verses 3 through 5 then, what's the deal here? It's a little bit of a shift, and some people have use that shift to claim, well, maybe it was two songs that were sort of spliced together. But I think in reality, um, this is really just the psalmist playing on a common metaphor in the Old Testament between house and family. And we're going to find that it's appropriate for a couple of reasons. I'm going to read it real quick again one more time. So, we read verses 3 through 5, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So, I think this is appropriate for illustrating what we see in verses 1 through 2 in a couple of ways, all right, that I'm just going to hit real quick here. So, first, as Eugene Peterson notes, this is an appropriate example because we see both the undeniable providential work of God in the gift of children as well as the need for faithful action by us raising children. So, we see the providential work of God in the gift of children, as well as the need for faithful action by us in raising children. So, children are a gift. It is clear when you first see an ultrasound or when you first hear your child cry or when you hold them and there's nothing that you, and you look at them, there's nothing you've done to design that nose or that smile or that white streak of hair that's in the back of their head, which is true for one of my kids, uh, to be sure that they're a gift, to be sure From the pains of like childbirth, or even before, to the pains of toddlerhood, to the pains of adolescence, to the pains of watching them leave your home for college or to start their own family, there is a lot of effort and pain that goes on in parenting. But if we start at the beginning, I think you'll see the order here. Unless the Lord brings the child into existence, unless the Lord knits them together, unless the Lord guides my actions in bringing them up in this world, unless the Spirit works in their lives to draw them to Him in Christ, our efforts are in vain. But to those He loves, He will give rest, even those of us who are raising children, which, by the way, is really all of us. So, there's a sense in which this is an appropriate example of God's providential work and our need uh, to keep Him at the center of that work. But it's also a good illustration of the fact that family relationships themselves are worth working for. And in, our particular, and in particular, I want to focus on this idea that spiritual relationships in the church are worth working for. They provide a source of security and rest So we we have been joined together as a spiritual family, we're laboring together, collectively seeking God, co-laboring for the advancement of the gospel, and in that we provide each other support, confidence, rest, and security. We remind each other of our ultimate inheritance in Christ Jesus by speaking the word into each other's lives. We become the very real vessels through which Christ ministers to each other. We are not meant to labor alone, but to work side by side in this family as we pursue our ultimate reward. And that's all I have to say about verses 3 through 5. If you want to hear more about that, we actually had a sermon series where we looked, it's called Generation Next, where we went more in depth about the raising up of the next generation, so I would encourage you uh, to go look at that from a couple months ago. But that's basically all I have to say about 3 through 5, except for I'll give a acknowledgement that yeah kids are great that's my plug for kids as well I agree with the psalmist here so b- before we go I have two areas of application that for us um, the first is in our own spiritual walk and the second is in the life of the church right and why by the church I mean our church here at Mercy House but also the greater story of redemptive history that we're a part of so if you're not a Christian Uh, I'd like you to have a listen here. Uh, Consider the promises that are going to be available to you uh, for those who commit to Christ, and come talk to one of us if you have any questions. But for those of us who are Christians, I want to first talk about our own individual spiritual walks, how we can think about the work of God in our own lives as one already being done, right? We can first know that the work has already been done through Christ on the cross. In Ephesians 2, 8, Paul tells us, by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's happened. In Romans 16, we read, the death he died, he died to sin once for all. It is finished. You who were once dead are now made alive. Thanks be to God. Second, it's something that has already occurred, but it is also something that is ongoing. It's both. Right? We can be confident that God will continue to work in us, sanctifying us, drawing us to a closer walk with Him, and ultimately bringing that work to completion. Philippians 1, 6, Paul, in Philippians 1.6, Paul writes, and I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God will continue to work in our lives our hearts and minds to bring about in us a more holy life. And by the way, I think this includes our attitude and perspective on work, which is the focus of this psalm. We can rest assured that no matter how frustrating our job, how futile our work may seem, that our highest hopes and desires will ultimately be fulfilled by Christ at the end of all things. In everything we do, if we do it as unto the Lord, then we have confidence that work will not be done in vain. There's there's an illustration of this in a story, it's called Leaf by Niggle, and it is written by J.R.R. Tolkien, the guy, Lord of the Rings guy. Uh, In it, there's an artist, the main character is an artist named Niggle who strives to perfectly capture a tree in a landscape painting. So the picture in his mind, it's vivid, it's brilliant, Uh, uh, and he wants to realize it on canvas, but his efforts, they're stunted by just like life, crowding it out. He works, but his efforts are inefficient at best. He's constantly interrupted by his neighbors, interrupted, who are needy. He needs things from them, but they're not thankful when he provides help. So he grumbles that he can't get anything done, but he begrudgingly gives out this uh, help out of discomfort more than anything. So no one appreciates or even attempts to appreciate his work. He receives no encouragement and they constantly berate him for what he isn't doing to keep up his house or to uh, work on his garden. And he ultimately makes little progress on his painting and at the end of his life, he has only completed a sketch with some details, including a leaf. When he dies, or in the story, he goes on a long journey, which, I mean, come on, that's, that's death. Uh, he's eventually taken to a place where uh, his tree is realized in full brilliance three dimensions with real birds and animals nesting in it and every detail just as he envisioned in life Uh, but the surrounding landscape still needs work and so uh, he labors with one of his neighbors who's also gone on a long journey uh, with him who is uh, you know, who he had fought with in life or who had, he had tried to help and who um, had given him such a hard time about his garden, they began to work together, both to, to work on a garden and a house together and on his landscape, uh, in, on the landscape that he had designed. And they come to learn uh, to care for each other, to care for each other's ca- interests more than their own, and they come to learn to work well, to work well with each other and rest well. And I think what Tolkien has in view here is that our work in this world, as imperfect as it may be, and the main character here is very imperfect, as skewed as our motives may be, as frustrating as our lack of progress or focus may be, that it is nonetheless good work and not work that is done in vain, but work that is done unto the Lord. And so, as part of the great story of Christ's redemptive work, that is redeeming everything, including our work that we do. And that draws us in not as passengers, but participants. And what's more, we can, we can trust that it will be completed, not because of our capabilities, but because it has already been completed. The redemption of creation and full brilliance of the created order restored will be accomplished, and we get to be a part of it. I suspect that Tolkien's probably right here too, that the ultimate workman created us in his image, and so our work will not stop in this life. But I know for sure that we will will be able to rest and we can rest knowing that he will complete the work that he started. So the second area of application I want to talk about here is God's work in the church. So it's not like a coincidence here that, that Niggle's neighbor is called Parish. Uh, he 's an imperfect and often needy person who nonetheless enriches and fulfills his work when he is able to work alongside and receive affirmation from him. I think this is especially poignant for us at this moment of transition in Mercy House because we are considering what it will mean for us to labor together as we move forward into a new chapter for this church 's history. as with the individual I want want to focus, I want to first note that there's a sense in which this work has already been accomplished, Mercy House. So, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says in his book, Life Together, that Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ, and it is nothing more or less than this. He later says that Christian community then is a divine reality because God has already laid the only foundation of our fellowship because God has bound us together in one body with other Christians in Jesus Christ. Long before we entered into common life with them, we enter into common life not as demanders, but thankful recipients. It's a gift. It's been given to us. It's a reality, a gift from God. There are not conditions or programs or hurdles that need to be met where where Christ has saved. There is Christian community. Now, it's still the case that just as in our day-to-day lives we need to like act rightly we have the responsibility to act faithfully for the good of our spiritual family and so we need to work even work night and day as Paul did at times no matter your stage of life how long you have been a Christian how long you plan to be in the area what your talents are you are called to work in the church so serve When there are calls for volunteers, sign up. We'll likely be setting up a new deacon training soon. Join up if you feel you're called to that. Initiate things. If you see a need in the church, move to meet that need. If you need help meeting that need, reach out to others and leadership to see what additional help can be afforded. Give generously. Not only is giving fruitful and necessary for us to carry out our work, but it's also a chance for you to recognize the dependence you have on God by giving to a point where it materially affects you. In doing so, you're you're placing your trust in God that He will provide And when Jesus sees the woman giving two small coins, he says, truly I tell you, this poor woman has put in more than all of them because she gave generously in ways that showed where her ultimate treasure lay. As we do these things, as we go about this work, I think in particular it's important for us to listen and bear with one another and be patient. Let's not insist on our own way but prayerfully consider the path forward. And this is a word for all of us, including uh, including myself. One way or another, this church will fail to live up to your expectations. Your elders, staff, your fellow church members are going to fail you, and they're going to fail in some way to fulfill your ideal. I'm not saying we should excuse sin, and we know that that's going to happen, and it's happened before and it will happen again. We need to confront sin, call it to repentance, and offer forgiveness. But, we may, but there may be ways in which we act that we just kind of leave you feeling disappointed. The church can just leave you feeling disappointed sometimes. And that's okay, by the way, to, with much patience and forbearance, make it known when those kinds of frustrations occur. But when things don't live up to our expectations on tertiary issues, let's not confuse our ideal church with the divine reality that God has graciously given us in each other. So, by the way, like many of the original plans for the Sagrada Familia Cathedral, they were burned up in the Spanish Civil War. Um, and so much of what they're working with today, is a reconstruction, uh, or there's bits and pieces that they have, or they have had to interpolate with somebody else's interpretation, right? The plans changed. It wasn't was what originally was, in, was originally intended, but it's still getting built, right? So I think there's a sense in which we need to bear with one another when things change that we're able to uh, not Enforce our ideal, but to trust that God is the one building the church. Again, I speak that as much to myself as anyone. And I think there's another another thing we can do here is we can pray for one another in these moments. So nothing better orients us to the reality that God is doing the work here at Mercy House than when we turn to the Great Builder in prayer and thanksgiving. Pray for the church. Pray for each other. Pray for your leaders. Pray that it would not be us, but Christ in us who labors to build. And finally, I think I'd be remiss in talking about this passage and its discussion of work without mentioning that we shouldn't anxiously overwork to secure the future of the church. Our perspective is not one of complacent ambivalence, but nor is it one of frantic flailing, Sure, be willing to serve. You need to take responsibility. Do what you've promised. But when the day is done, set it aside. Take time off. Trust that God can build the church regardless of how quickly you respond to that email. This takes judgment because sometimes we need to respond to calls and events in ways that are not convenient to us. For some of us, that means you need to lean in and step up, but for some, it might mean you need a season where you pull back. Cultivate in your heart a willingness to sacrifice, but also the ability to trust God by not putting yourself at the center of accomplishing the work. Finally, Mercy House, I think we can take the long view here. Gaudí, when asked about the long timeline on the Sagrada Familia Cathedral, supposedly said, my client is not in a hurry. Our faith calls and enables us to have this kind of perspective. In our sinful humanity, our interest and in legacy that lasts beyond our lifetime, it's, it's pretty limited and it's pretty vain in its own right. We might, like, in our best moments, care about our grandchildren and, and some future generations, but ultimately, as the great economists once said, in the long run, we're all dead. But when we are able to place ourselves in the grand narrative of Christ's redemptive work, and when we can look forward to the ultimate completion of that work, when the trumpet sounds and Jesus descends in glory, then uh, we will be able to work unto the Lord. We can trust that we are part of something much, much bigger than ourselves, a work which God himself is directing, animating, giving life and purpose to every act of service, charity, and ministry that we do. We see in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, Note here that the apostles and prophets, with Christ Himself as the cornerstone, they're part of the same building as you. You're part of a story and a work that has been fashioned over 2,000 years and more. That should inspire some awe for us. And even on a smaller timescale, this is one reason why we like to talk about the history of our local church and our Meet Mercy House classes, because it gives us a sense that joining a church as a member makes you part of something bigger than yourself. And our... In our case, it goes back 22 years, but we hope will continue for many years to come by the grace of God. The Lord is building a house, a house He dwells in, and those who labor do not labor in vain because they get to dwell with Him. And those who watch over this community will not be put to shame, not because of us, but Christ in us. Let's pray. Oh God, we praise You, You're sovereign over all. Nothing lies outside of Your power or knowledge. You are the master builder. You are the great overseer. You work, You watch, and You care for us. We confess that we either put too much emphasis on our own efforts and abilities, as if these gifts are not from You, working frantically to secure ourselves or we are frustrated by her lack of progress and ability and we despair sinking into complacency give us a proper perspective of your design for our work give us the ability to work and work diligently but then rest in you when our work is done We thank you for the work you have done in Jesus Christ by sending him to live as a man and experience the work of humans and to die on a cross in order to bear our sins. We thank you you have freed us from sin through his death and resurrection, and we eagerly await the day when you will bring that work to ultimate completion. We pray our efforts at our jobs, in school, and in this church as we seek to minister to this community that you would Fill us with Your Spirit as we labor unto You and not for ourselves. Build this house, O God. Watch over Your people and let us not work in vain, but for Your glory. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.